Welcome to Fifth Wall's Building to Zero podcast. The real estate industry is the world's single largest contributor to climate change. At Fifth Wall, we're on a mission to help the industry eradicate its carbon emissions and build to zero. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I sit down with Matt Scullin, the CEO of MicaWorks, a San Francisco-based startup which produces sustainable product and apparel from fungi. Matt shares examples of how consumer choice is driving change in the fashion industry and what the real estate industry can learn from this. Enjoy the conversation. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining. Where are you Zooming in from today? Uh, Thanks for having me. Um, I'm in San Francisco currently. Nice. Um, Well, I'd love to chat with you about kind of specifically all the interesting things you've done in your career around sustainability and some of the lessons that can be learned for the real estate industry from that. But can you start maybe by just giving people your background and how you got interested in sustainability? Sure. Um, So I uh, am a material scientist by training, Um, undergrad in material science at UPenn, came out here to California to do a PhD in material science at Berkeley. And I found myself um, in the years uh, 2005 to 2009, uh, sort of in the right place at the right time uh, at Berkeley. Uh, The the professors who I I was working for and working with became the Department of Energy's a clean energy mafia, if you will. They all sort of got absorbed into, into the Obama administration. And all of a sudden, I had a lot of credibility because of uh, the folks I was associated with. And at the same time, um, you know, didn't really uh, see myself staying in academia, wanted to go into the business world, and uh, found there was just a, a lot of interesting things going on in the world of clean tech, a lot of new investors coming into the space, um, uh, you know, the ecosystem developing at Berkeley and Stanford, and was uh, a part of a program to look at waste heat. So all of the wasted energy that comes out of buildings and power plants and cars and factories and things like that. And um, a, a funny anecdote about how things got started there. I, I actually called up uh, my best friend uh, from New York uh, growing up, a guy named Ashish, who uh, uh, was in real estate private equity. And he had been involved with some transactions with, with a couple huge office buildings in Midtown Manhattan. I said, Ashish, there's, there's a gigawatt of waste energy being uh, 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 basically um, expelled into the sewer system in New York under Midtown. I need to get into these buildings and talk to the building managers and check it out. And so my first foray into really looking at clean tech was, was in uh, uh, the Helmsley building in New York and uh, down in the basement of the Helmsley building with the building manager, you know, sort of a wake up call where the building manager was just like, look, my job is to keep the lights on and to keep the HVAC running, right? Very rational sort of spreadsheet driven, low risk decision-making process. And I think that sort of informed my last, well now, you know, 13 years of being in sustainability and trying to push clean energy products into the market is that um, as much as we might hear about how important sustainability is, the industries that uh, can make huge impact and that need to change a lot are industries that are inherently not risk takers, right? They're, they're industries that like, are inherently concerned with like other things. 
like real estate, right? And so at Alphabet Energy, we ended up selling primarily into the automotive and oil and gas industries, you know, speaking of, of conservative industries, and it was always an uphill battle. And I think, um, you know, really uh, in clean tech, we all sort of learned that at the end of the day, it boils down to cost. And so a lot of clean tech companies had this classic chasm problem, right? Where you get to a point where you need to scale up in order to bring your costs down. But in order to do that, you need an enormous amount of capital. And so you're, you're sort of teetering on the chasm of death there and not many companies made it. And so Alphabet Energy did really well getting product to market eventually, um, sort of had a bit of the chasm problem. Uh, but at the same time, um, and, and I think overall, you know, the, the real challenge at Alphabet, I'll just uh, close that thought with, is that we were at the behest of the oil price, right? So commodities prices really don't go well with a venture-backed model. You know, you want, when you're, when you're venture-backing a company, you want to be able to enter the market at a really high price point. You want to be able to uh, have control over your own destiny and not be at the behest of, of uh of whatever the commodity that you're trying to compete with is trading at. And so uh, after oil was at a really, really low price for a while, we had to close uh, Alphabet's doors. We ended up selling the company. Um, but what that led to, sort of an understanding that um, materials have the potential to have enormous impact in tons of different areas, whether they're buildings or, or um, you know, heavy industry, um, but also things that, you know, sort of we as consumers really like, like fashion, footwear, uh, things of that nature. And there are lots of really interesting innovations happening in the fashion and luxury industries where there's an enormous amount of waste that's, uh, that's created every year. And so um, I was drawn to materials innovations in that area because those are industries where emotion is really a part of the purchasing decision. You're closer to the consumer. It's consumer driven, right? It's consumer driven. Exactly. And so when you, when you have something that's consumer driven, it's not quite as spreadsheet driven, right? You can, right. you can appeal more to, towards, towards uh, uh, some of these themes that are, are so powerful in the economy right now around health and wellness and alternative protein, uh, veganism, anti-plastics, right? You know, there are these incredible tailwinds that I think are truly secular. We're seeing that um, big brands, big companies are making real uh, supply, supply chain changes that are gonna be very long-term and very durable towards these trends. And so, um, so thought that, you know, by, by uh, looking at materials innovations in those industries, it would, those would work really well with a venture-backed model where you know, you had the ability to be more of a price maker and to enter the market with something that people would pay for initially while you came down your cost curve to address the mass market, which is what we're doing now at MicroWorks, which is the company I've been CEO of for about uh, three and a half years now. And I want to make obviously that transition, but just to double click on Alphabet's business, I guess w when you were looking at the real estate industry, um, when you looked at all of the energy consumption, right? Because the real estate industry is, we both know, like one of the most consumptive industries with respect to energy, which is kind of a, a counterintuitive point to a lot of people. I guess, how much of that energy is wasted? And, and how would you define wasted, right? Or wasting that energy? Like, how do you think about it? How should people be thinking about that when they look at a building and they're trying to understand how efficient it is? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. Buildings do comprise an enormous amount of total energy consumption, and that's primarily through 
heating, ventilation, air conditioning, HVAC. Um, and lighting, of course, plays a big role. Computers, servers, things like that, that we have in a modern office building play a big role. Uh, but heating and cooling are the biggest areas of, of energy consumption. And I believe buildings um, comprise about, uh, you know, real estate, if you will, comprises about a third of all energy consumption. You know, the other third being heavy industry, factories, the other third being transportation. So it's really an enormous amount of energy that's being consumed, which when you think about it makes sense because it's where, um, it's where we are, right? It's where, where we need to acclimatize our, our, our lives, right? So, so we need energy for that. So, um, you know, uh, heating and cooling is very wasteful. Uh, about two thirds of all the energy that's used for heating and cooling and electricity is wasted. There are some um, interesting exceptions. Actually, New York City, where the first power plant was, um, you know, built by Thomas Edison on the Lower East Side a very, very long time ago. Uh, New York City has one of the most efficient building um, HVAC systems in the world because of the district heating system. So from day one, district heating was designed into the city so that the waste heat from the power plant gets recycled as steam that goes right up into all the radiators in New York. It's a closed loop. It's, it's kind of certain it sense that that exhaust right. would otherwise just be spilled into some useless right, diffusion of energy is now actually heating people's homes. Exactly. And, and so those district heating systems, I think there are about a dozen of them in the United States, a dozen municipalities that have district heating are extremely efficient. So New York City actually operates, I think, close to 90% energy efficiency overall, whereas most power plants um, and most energy systems in general are closer to 30%. So there is an enormous opportunity in thinking about how that, that, of course, being an extreme case, but generally speaking, there's an enormous opportunity um, in thinking about how we design buildings to be more energy efficient. And, you know, one of one of the uh, this is very dated now. This was probably 10 or 15 years ago. But uh, one of my Ph.D. advisors, Arun Majumdar, was very much involved with um, uh, measuring building efficiency uh, and lead certification can be very misleading it's you know you have to look at is the lead certification being done um, you know based on the design of the building or the actual operation of the building and what i found really striking about that huge gap between what buildings were lead certified for versus what they were actually performing at there's a huge gap in the understanding of how buildings actually perform once you design and build them and a big uh piece of that is the materials right so insulation um, if you're using certain building materials, how does that affect heat transfer throughout the building? So, um, you know, it's remarkable how simple things like ventilation, which, you know, have become even more important over the past year because of COVID, uh, you know, ventilation now uh, appearing to be uh, one of the more important factors in reducing uh, COVID transmission. I think that's something that's going to be applied to, to common cold and flu transmission in general. And I actually think there's a huge upcoming HVAC revolution that can occur, right? I think now that we understand not only so much about energy, but also about how, how viruses are transmitted indoors, um, we're going to see that ventilation is going to be redesigned in a lot of, of modern um, architecture, um, or at least it should be. So I, I think there are really interesting opportunities there. And how would you redesign it? Is that a, like, what does that mean? Like, because when I conceptualize ventilation, um, it's hard for me to intuit how you would redesign it. Like, what does that mean to redesign ventilation within a building? You know, that's, that's a great question. I, I don't know what the answer to that is. You know, I can tell you that um, 
from my experience in uh, dealing with energy efficiency in the automotive industry, there's a lot of work around zonal cooling. So the idea that instead of all the AC coming from, you know, the dashboard, right, being right. blown directly on your face, can you more efficiently cool the body by having a lower flow of air, maybe through the seat or, you know, above you, below you, things like that, so that you get cooler, your body temperature comes down faster, but with lower overall energy consumption, that's very important in cars when you're looking at extending the range of electric vehicles. I think that's one of the, the, uh, the big opportunities that people are gonna be looking at now as they aim to enhance uh, ventilation and also filtration um, inside buildings. And I also want to, you know, ask you about, you made this kind of transition with the insights you, it sounds like derived from, from Alphabet Energy, that materials can have this profound effect on the performance, the sustainability performance of anything from a fashion good to a building. And you, you made a point earlier that in some ways the, the connection is more direct in a consumer space like fashion, right? Because the feedback loop might be faster and there's also a an emotional charge and intimacy to a product that a, a building just doesn't have, right? And the, the transaction of how someone leases space is so complicated and arduous and obtuse that it's like hard to draw correlations between a more energy efficient building and more demand for that building. But how did you think about that transition and walk me through that inspiration? Yeah, so, um, you know, at Alphabet Energy, what I saw firsthand is that sustainability can get you in the door. It can be something that people talk about. It can be a driving factor for say a first meeting with a customer, but it's not gonna be the deciding factor in a purchase decision, right? At the end of the day, things have to perform. You know, things have to do what they were intended to, to do. And fashion materials is no exception. And so, um, you know, I saw what was going on in this field of biomaterials in general. So really fascinating field where um, materials are now being synthesized using biology. So, so think of, you know, the laboratory is the loom now. You can come up with materials that microorganisms can, can make, that they can secrete, or uh, that in our case, you know, we can control a fungus, a mushroom, to grow sheets of mycelium, their roots into a really tough, durable material that is like leather, that we can turn into this leather material that we call reishi. Wow. And so, you know, this is, some, this is a, a huge breakthrough in, in material science because we've developed this platform that allows us to engineer the organism as it grows as a sheet, something you can't do with an animal hide, of course, and you can't even do with plastic. And so, um, while those tailwinds that I mentioned earlier, you know, the anti-plastic movement, alternative protein, veganism, all these things, while they sort of are the leading edge of any sales pitch, well, they, they get our foot in the door and while, you know, these are things that are on consumers' minds. Consumers, when they're presented with an option between something that might be an eco brand or something that might be really high performance, like a, like a sneaker, right? They're typically gonna pick the high performance product. Um, you know, consumers don't want to sacrifice uh, performance for sustainability, quality for sustainability. And so like what we saw in clean tech, I think what I was seeing in, in fashion and biomaterials is that a lot of eco brands were popping up, but I didn't think these eco brands were going to have staying power because eco brands tend to be a bit more fatty, right? There's a lot of greenwashing going on and it might look good, you know, um, 
in an ad campaign, it might be good, you know, a cocktail party conversation, but at the end of the day, you know, are they going to really be durable businesses? And I think that what, what, uh, what materials can, can do, the power that they have is that they are the basis for any products that we make. And so if you can deliver a material that has extremely high quality and extremely high performance, that also potentially even has new features, things that you couldn't do previously. It allows new products to be made and it allows consumers to connect with those products in new ways and in very powerful ways. So what's an, what's an example of that? Well, an example is, is Reishi, this material we make, right? Because, you know, when I met the founders, Phil and Sophia, a uh, really fascinating story. They actually founded the company as artists. Phil um, uh, was an artist sculpting with mycelium, growing mycelium into different forms for 25 years. And he had invented all of these different materials uh, with mycelium, foams, uh, bricks, uh, that he actually initially experimented with as building materials. So, you know, uh, just as a quick tangent, um, he was even working with NASA on a program where instead of uh, uh, bringing building materials to Mars, they would just bring a little vial of mushroom spores and they would grow the mycelium on Mars and turn that into building materials, right? Because wow. this mycelium, yeah, it has incredible properties. It's super tough, super lightweight, fire retardant. Um, it's really an incredible material. And so uh, when I met Phil and saw his material, I said, hey, you know, this is really differentiated. This is very different from what other people in this field are doing. The quality is so high that I think we can really make an impact in the market by instead of competing as a, as a sustainability brand, as an eco brand, by actually just competing as another form of natural material. And so that's, that's what we're doing at Microworks. We, we are another option for natural leathers, right? You know, the earth has given us cows and sheep and snakes and crocodiles, all these things that we turn into leather. And now we have harnessed mycelium in a process that we call fine mycelium um, that has incredible durability, incredible strength, you know, allows us to make all kinds of, of, or our partners, I should say, to make all kinds of amazing products with the material, handbags, shoes, things like that. And uh, our partnerships there are, are really awesome and they're gonna be products in market uh, in the coming months with our material uh, in it, made with Reishi. And it sounds like the, the kind of inherent tension you were describing before between one's sustainability sensibilities and their, or their, their ethics and the performance of a product, that tension is not there, meaning there's no inherent trade-off. And to some extent, it sounds like the synthetic product is actually better than the less sustainable product in, in leather. Is that the case for, for Rishi? Yeah, yeah. And, and we don't like the word synthetic because it's still a natural material and synthetic sort right. of implies plastic, right? But that's just semantics. Yes, your point, your point is well taken. And, and I think that it really is that that is the crux of being able to have true impact you know if if a brand and that's what our brand partners are really excited about they're they're excited about the idea of transforming their supply chains because currently leather is very very wasteful there's an enormous amount of waste through the entire value chain a lot of leather is scrapped and that's because you're dealing with a raw material that's completely uncontrolled and an example I like to give I, you know, is just how as to just how opaque and uncontrolled this industry is. You can walk into even a mediocre restaurant today and they'll tell you what farm your cut of meat came from, right? 
you can buy a thousand dollar pair of leather boots and you have no idea what farm that leather came from. Why? No idea. Because the supply chain is just so opaque and there's so many intermediaries before it ultimately gets delivered to the brand and in turn to the customer. That's right. There's just, there's just no traceability whatsoever. And what that means to a brand is that they have very little control, right? You know, if there was a drought in India that year, if there were more mosquitoes in Brazil that year, that's going to change the quality of the hides. And in turn, that's going to change the quality of the finished product. So what brands are really interested in doing, you know, the definition of luxury and, you know, that has now extended all the way to, um, you know, the big sneaker brands, for instance, right? The Nikes and Adidas of the, of the world, um, you know, they're looking for complete control over everything in their supply chain. So the ability to have input into the raw material to say, look, we want you to grow microworks. We want you to grow the raw material to exactly the specification, same way every time that can lead to huge changes in the way that they source, use, deliver the material, recycle it at end of life, which is ultimately, you know, the, the responsibility of the brand to build products that can be recycled at end of life and educate the, the consumers on how to do that. And it starts with a really good raw material. And so our brand partners are really excited, not just about the lower carbon footprint or some of these, you know, sort of near term, um, sustainability performance metrics, really about how this can create huge efficiencies in their supply chain that make it a better overall material to buy and to use. And probably more predictable, right? There's a there's exactly. a durability yeah. and a resilience to that supply chain when you're not as subject to, you know, variances in temperature or crops or, you know, livestock in different geographies. Um, totally. And, yeah. and I guess what, what I'm curious about is, is kind of two components of that, that, that seem very relevant for the real estate industry. One is how consumers are communicating their preferences, both. It sounds like their sustainability sensibilities and what they care about their, their ethics, they're communicating that to brands and their purchase decisions and how that's ultimately flowing back into the demand for raw materials, because to me, there's a big lesson there in, in what we can do in the real estate industry. And the second is actually in supply chain tracing, right? Which in the real estate industry is equally opaque. Like the real estate industry makes buildings and every building is totally bespoke or nearly bespoke. It's a totally customized project and you have all these subcontractors. And so all of their materials, it's nearly impossible to trace, but it's estimated that for a given building, about 30 times it's operational carbon footprint is its embodied carbon, the amount of carbon it took to actually get the materials and erect that building out of those materials. So I guess when you think about what you've learned from the fashion industry, what are some of the lessons and insights for um, sustainability forward real estate owners that are trying to learn from what other industries have done well to apply to their industry? Yeah, I think the first big lesson is that consumers are truly making decisions with their wallets right now based on sustainability. They really are. And if they weren't, we wouldn't have hundreds and hundreds of brands breathing down our neck for more material, right? We are, we are seeing just crazy demand for what we're doing. And to answer your question directly, I think what it's about is measurement. It's about metrics that we can now use as an industry to compare different 
um, different options in materials or, or other things in our supply chain. So what the fashion industry has done really well and what the leaders in the fashion industry have done, such as uh, the Caring Group, you know, one of the big luxury holding companies, is they actually have an environmental profit and loss that they have audited every year that becomes a part of their executive performance and what they're measuring as a company. Um, you have things like the HIG index, which measures the overall sustainability of a raw material. And so I think that when you have the ability to truly measure sustainability, it allows consumers, like with anything else that they would buy, you know, go online and, and draw a comparison between a few products that they want to buy, like we all do when we want to make a big purchase decision. Um, now there are tools available in these measurements around sustainability that let, that let brands do that with materials like ours. Um, and that's growing for uh, consumers with the actual finished product. And you see that in the marketing that a lot of fashion brands are doing. They're talking about numbers. They're talking about real impact that their decisions and their sustainability efforts um, are, are having or making. And there's, it sounds like so I a, think that there's almost like a quantitative rigor to it, meaning that's right. You know, so yes. much of what, what I think is, is challenging in any industry is that a, a lot of what sustainability unfortunately morphs into is highly impressionistic. So like, for example, and yeah, very subjective, in the real estate industry, we talk to real estate owners and we'll say, well, what are you doing, you know, to reduce the carbon footprint of your assets? And they will say things like, well, we have gardens on our roofs where, you know, the tenants can grow tomatoes. And I'm like, well, that's cute. Um, that's nice, but that really has no impact. Like a handful of tomatoes you grow on your roof has nothing to do with the amount of concrete you just poured into the earth. <laughs> so like, that's right. it, it's distracting and it's, not empirical and it's not technocratic. And it sounds like what your product and or well, companies like Caring are doing is they're making it more traceable in a numeric way that in turn is passed to consumers and changing the kinds of questions they're asking of brands, right? There's, there's less um, receptivity to kind of the casual greenwashing that you do see in, in a lot of industries. Yes, there, there's a lot of greenwashing and, you know, we expect transparency today. You know, we live in an era where you can find out anything about anything very quickly online. So if there isn't transparency about what's going into the thing that you're, you're buying, the thing that you're, you're devoting, um, you know, time to whatever it might be, um, you're going to be skeptical of it. Brands are saying, look, we want to know, the, the quantifiability behind sustainability in your material. Brands are rejecting general greenwashing claims. You have to quantify it for them. And so I think that you could do the same thing for a building, of course, right? And, you know, this tests my, my knowledge, the limit of my knowledge of, of how this works in buildings. But, um, you know, the, 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 the life cycle analysis of a building is certainly uh, not a, a far-fetched thing. You know how much carbon... Uh, a cubic meter of steel or concrete is going is yeah, to emit. The interesting thing is, and I imagine it's relevant for transportation, is that you do know it at the materials level. Um, but one of the big challenges in real estate, which I imagine is true in fashion, although it's, it's, um, it requires a little more imagination to figure it out. Yeah. Well, Matt, this has been just so interesting, just getting your thoughts on, one, just hearing your your kind of career arc and like the inspiration from 
real estate and energy waste now into kind of high fashion and high performance materials. Um, but also just like some of the lessons I think the real estate industry can learn from that. Um, so thank you so much for just sharing your thoughts. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me and, and great chatting with you. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening to this episode of Building the Zero. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.